You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. Second chapter of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. Just go to uh, Ephesians and turn left. <laughs> you can't find Galatians. It's about five or six chapters there. Snuggled into your New Testament. Galatians, the fifth chapter. Did I say the fifth chapter? <laughs> confusion, mass confusion. Galatians, the second chapter. Galatians chapter two. Okay, got it. Galatians chapter two. And we're going to read a verse of Scripture in just a moment. We put an awful lot of emphasis around here on winning. If the word wasn't already out, then let me give you the word on that. We put a lot of emphasis around here on winning. We uh, just completed our softball season just a few weeks ago, and it was pretty evident from the very first game. I remember the first night that we took the field under Chuck Bettinger's most able leadership in organizing that, that whole monstrosity. Uh, it was pretty evident from the very beginning that there was a strong sense of competition that was going to be going on uh, during that, that coming season. And, uh, and there was that, that spirit of wanting to win and wanting to be the very best that you could possibly be. And when the season was over, to be that number one team that was set out as being the ones that won the softball league. That sense of competition and that desire to be the best and that desire to win and to be good is good and is healthy in itself. Because you see, when the desire to be the best dies, when the desire to be the very best that you can possibly be, and when the desire to win dies, then that person becomes a loser and begins to become a loser in whatever avenue of life in which they are involved. But quite frankly, sometimes the demands of winning are too great. If you're going to be really honest, sometimes you have to look at your team and the, uh, the talent and the ability that's on your team and look at that team that's across from you and just weigh those two together. And you have to come to the final bedrock conclusion that the Demands of winning are too great, and the ability to win in that situation is just beyond your resources. As I look at the Christian life, I come to the conclusion that that is also true of our walk with the Lord. That is also true of the Christian life. And as I look at the Christian life and the demands that are made by Jesus in the Christian walk, I come to two statements that I cannot escape, two statements that haunt me, and that I cannot turn my back on, and that I cannot escape. First of all, there is the statement that the demands of Christ are impossible. The demands of Jesus are actually impossible. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Now, get honest with me. Is that easy to do? Is that a possible level of achievement for you and for me? to love your enemies and to pray for those that persecute you? When was the last time that you really spent time honestly praying for somebody that was persecuting you or loving someone that you knew was your enemy? That's an impossible demand that Jesus makes upon us. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Don't worry about anything. 
He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where you're going to sleep. Don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious for anything. Just never worry about anything in this physical and material life. Now, let me ask you, is that your level of experience? Is that a possible demand upon your life in your experience? Can you honestly say that you never worry about what you're going to eat? That you never worry about what you're going to wear? That you never worry about where you're going to sleep? Is that a possible demand that Jesus makes upon your life? And I come to the conclusion as I take a look at the Christian life and my walk with the Lord, and I am faced with this dilemma that the demands of Jesus upon life are impossible. They're impossible. But you see, I know I'm saved. I know that the Lord is my Lord and my Savior. I know that I've been born again, and so I get my, my offering envelopes under one arm and my Sunday school quarterly on the other, and I set out to do the impossible, to live up to the demands of Jesus. And I haven't gone very far until I'm brought face-to-face with that second very troubling and awesome statement to use to quote a famous person. Not only are the demands of Christ impossible, but my resources are inadequate. The demands of Christ are impossible, but my resources are inadequate. In other words, is this plant going to eat me? (laughs) This thing is is coming after me. (laughs) I looked down there and I thought I saw a snake. (laughs) The demands of Christ are impossible, and my resources are inadequate. In other words, I can't do it. I can't love my enemies. I can't pray for those who persecute me. I can't can't keep from worrying about what I'm going to eat. I can't keep from worrying about what I'm going to drink. I cannot keep from worrying about some of the material things of life. I'm faced with that dilemma that my resources to, to fulfill the demands of Jesus are inadequate. And so here I am. I'm faced with this troubling dilemma that Jesus has placed these impossible demands upon me, and I'm faced with the understanding that my resources to fulfill those demands are inadequate, yet on the other side of that, Jesus has called me to be a winner. Jesus has called me to be an overcomer, to live on top of circumstances and to not live beneath circumstances, and I seem to be faced with this irreconcilable dilemma or paradox. Because, you see, my experience does not match the demand of Christ. When I'm faced with that dilemma and when I do it in my own resources, I come to this conclusion that my personal experience does not live up to the demands of Jesus. And I suspect that most of you probably would have to be honest and say the same thing about your life. What's the answer? How can my experience in daily life be brought up to the demands of Christ rather than bringing the demands of Christ down to match my experience in life? How can my life be brought to the level of overcoming How can my life be brought to the level of being a winner when the demands of Christ are impossible and when my resources are inadequate to do it? How can that happen? Well, I want to preach to you today on the subject of the life that wins, the life that overcomes. And Paul gives it to us in Galatians, the second chapter, only one verse. And it is a very, very, very well-known verse, a verse that you, many of you have probably memorized from the time you were children. It was one of the first verses that I memorized when I became a Christian. I've never preached on this verse of Scripture. I took it for so long that God's people were so familiar with this verse, uh, just like maybe John 3.16, that I never have preached on Galatians 2.20. And the Lord just laid this on my heart to preach Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And as I studied it, I came to the conclusion that Paul is giving us, if you will, the formula or the secret. You know, if you put those words in the title of a book, you're going to sell a million copies. It's the formula for something or the secret for something. And so I try to steer away from that. But in in this verse of Scripture... Paul really does give us the key to living a life that wins. 
and living a life that can be brought up to the level of the demands of Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life that wins. What kind of life is it that really wins? What kind of life is it that overcomes in life? How can my experience be brought up to match the demands of Jesus rather than living below and beneath the demands of Jesus? Well, I want to say to you, first of all, that the winning life, the life that wins, the life that of an overcomer is, first of all, an executed life. It is an executed life. Notice what Paul says there at the very beginning of verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Now, crucifixion was used for only one thing. Crucifixion was a form of execution. The sentence had been passed and the execution had been carried out. I am crucified with Christ. And Paul says, that has been my experience. I, my life has been executed. Now, what he means by that is that I have died to my own desires the old me, the old Hebrew of Hebrews, the old Pharisee, the old Christian hater, all of those things that were part of my old life, all of my own desires, Paul says all of that has been nailed upon the cross with Jesus. I have been crucified. I am an executed individual. Now that idea of dying in order to win or dying in order to live was not a new theme in Scripture when Paul said this because you see the Lord Jesus had said it himself. In John, the 12th chapter, Jesus had said to that little group of disciples, he said, unless a grain of corn falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Unless it falls in the ground and gives up its own life, then it can never sprout and bear fruit because you see it's a fact of nature that a seed never sprouts, it never bears fruit until it first of all gives up its life, until it first of all dies. And Jesus said, if anyone is going to keep their life, then they must lose their life. Isn't that interesting? Jesus said the key to, to keeping life is just to give it up and to die. If anyone is going to keep their life, they must lose their life. But if you would lose your life, then try to hold on to it, Jesus said. Romans chapter 6, Paul rehearses that theme over and over again about the fact that we have died with Christ. And he repeats that theme over and over in the sixth chapter of Romans. And he says, we are to be crucified with Christ. We are, in other words, to die in order to live. It's a fact of nature. A seed must die before it can live. It's a fact of the spirit. You must die until you can begin to live the victorious life. And so the winning life is, first of all, an executed life. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. But I want to make a couple of statements about this, this executed life, this life that has died to itself, this death, in other words, that Paul talks about. First of all, it is a past actual event. This death is an actual past event. Paul says, I have been crucified. Not Paul says, I am being crucified or I will be crucified. But Paul puts it in the past tense and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, what event is Paul referring to? Well, obviously, he's referring to that Damascus Road experience, isn't he? 
that he referred to so many times in his letters as he wrote to the various churches. He refers to that time when he was on the road to Damascus going to persecute more Christians and the Lord Jesus appeared to him miraculously there and Paul fell on his face and fell on his knees before the Lord and confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior at that moment, at that exact instant, Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. At that moment, I died. My life was executed. Now that means that if you are saved today, if you know the Lord as Savior by faith in a faith personal relationship, then you have died. You're a dead person. You have been nailed to the cross. You have been crucified. Your life has been executed. And if you are going to live a life that wins, a life that overcomes and that measures up to the expectations of the Christian walk, then it, you must, first of all, die. And it is a faith transaction, just as it was a faith transaction for Paul on the Damascus Road when he fell on his face before God and confessed Jesus as Lord and Master. At that moment, Paul says, I was crucified. I have been. It is a past event. It's an actual event. But not only is it a past actual event, it must be a daily appropriated experience. And this is where many of us fail. Because you see, if you've trusted Jesus as Savior, you can't keep from dying. You have been crucified. God does that. It is a spiritual transaction. You have no choice in the matter, and you wouldn't want a choice in the matter. When you trust Christ in faith, you die with Jesus. You die on the cross. You are crucified with Christ. That is a past event. But not only is it a past event, but in order to live the life that wins, it must be a daily appropriated experience. You see, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, but then in another place... What does he say? He says, I die daily. He says, on a daily basis, I take up my cross. I die daily. Daily, I am crucified. This thing of dying to self, dying to the old life is a daily experience. Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about the fact that, that we have died with Christ. And he says that because we have died with Christ, he says we are no longer to be slaves to sin. And then he says in verse 11, makes an interesting statement. He says, therefore... Consider yourselves dead because you have died with Christ, because you are no longer slaves to sin. He says, then therefore consider yourselves dead. And that word consider is an interesting, is an interesting word. It is actually in the original language an accounting term. It's a, it's a term that accountants would use. And it was a term that they would use when they would look at the books. They'd open up the books and they'd open up the spreadsheet there and they would look at those things, they would consider the books there, and then on the basis of what the book said, then they would come to a conclusion. Now listen to what Paul is saying. He says, because you have died with Christ, because you are no longer slaves to sin, then therefore consider yourselves dead. In other words, open up the books, look at the accounts, and make the decision that on that day, you in fact are going to appropriate that crucifixion on the cross with Jesus. That that day, for that moment and for that day, that you really are going to appropriate this death and die to self on that day. It means to look at the accounts, to look at what has happened, to look at what has happened to you when you trust Christ in faith and make that a daily appropriation, appropriate that, that death on a daily basis. That's the life that wins. It is an executed life. Yes, it's a past actual event, but it must be a present appropriated experience. Why is that so important? Well, I'll tell you why it's important, because a dead person can't do anything. A dead person can't do anything. Of all the funerals that I've ever presided over and the funerals I've been to, I've never seen a dead person do anything. A dead person cannot do anything. A dead person can't pray. A dead person can't witness. A dead person can't serve. 
A dead person cannot do anything. That's why it's important for you to appropriate your death on a day-by-day basis with Christ. You see, many Christians never live a life that wins and never overcome in life because they live their life in their own power. This is what they do. They get up in the morning and without taking time to consider the books and take account of the fact that they've been crucified with Christ and make that a decision for that day, Instead of saying, Lord, today I die to myself right now. I just crucify myself again on the cross with Christ. I just die today. Today, you're the only one that's going to live. I'm going to be be dead today. Instead of doing that, they get up in the morning and they begin the day in their own power. And they try to go out and do the things that a dead person can't do. They go out and try to witness and a dead person can't witness. They go out and try to pray and a dead person can't pray. They go out and try to serve the Lord, but a dead person, you see, can't do any of those things. They go out and try to do it in their own power. And at the end of the day, they have looked back on the day and it has been a day of defeat. It has been a day of not being able to love enemies. It has been a day of not being able to pray for those who persecute you. It has been a day of anxiety and worry. Instead of what Jesus said, don't worry about anything. And they look back at the day and it has been a day of complete and total defeat. Why? Because they've been going out trying to do the things that a dead person can't do. And you can't. And try to do it in their own power. But you see, if you're going to win, if you're going to live the life that overcomes, you must recognize that you are dead on a day-by-day experience. It must be a day-by-day appropriation of that death on the cross with Christ. It must be a day-by understanding. Listen, this is so important, that God expects nothing out of you. Did you know that? God expects nothing out of you and nothing out of me. In my flesh, I cannot do anything that will please God. I cannot do anything that is going to honor God in my flesh. I cannot do anything that he expects me to do. I can do nothing that is good. Each and every day of my life, if I'm going to live a life that is up to the demands of Christ, I must accept the fact, the verdict of death on that day. I must get up in the morning and say, Lord, I reaffirm that death, that crucifixion, that executed life today for the whole day. And you know what that'll do for you? That'll set you free. What that'll do for you is that'll give you victory. It'll set you free from everything that has power over you in life. Listen to this. Someone criticizes you. I mean, they just criticize you, and, and, and you're not going to go through too many days without having somebody criticize you. You're gonna, somebody's going to be taking pot shots at you for some reason or another. And so somebody comes along and they criticize you, but that's okay because, you see, you can't hurt a dead person. He's dead. So you don't have to retaliate criticism. You're dead. You can't hurt a dead person. Somebody comes along and praises you and just pumps you up real good and real big. There's no problem with that. Because you see, you can't fill a dead person with pride. You're dead. So there's no problem with with pride in your life. Someone hates you. Someone just can't stand you, just can't stand your face and just can't stand to look at you. But see, that's no problem for you because you're not going to be filled with resentment, are you? Why? Because you're a dead person. You've died that day. You know that all the problems that we face, all the problems that we have at home, all of the problems that you have within your home and your family, all the problems that you have within your church relationship, all the problems of relationship with people that you have in life over one thing, self, self, self. I want my way. I want my say-so. I want my name to go down on the record books that I said that, and I want to give credit for it. All of our problems are because we're not dead on that day to self. 
And when the old self gets resurrected and we live in the old power of the old self that day, it's like a dead person trying to do something that a dead person can't do. And all it prob causes is problems. Looking out for old number one. You know, looking out for number one is a full-time job. It's a full-time job. Most of you have already got a full-time job and you don't need another one. But looking out for self and for the old number one is a full-time job. Saying, I want my say-so. I want it the way that I want it to be done. I want to be sure that I get credit for the things that I'm supposed to get credit for. I want to be sure that my rights are upheld and that my rights are fulfilled. And I want to, I got to look out and make sure that nobody says anything to me that's going to hurt my feelings and all of that stuff. But you see, that's not necessary if you're dead. None of that's necessary if you've been executed on a day-by-day -day basis. If you consider yourself and just look at the books and say, but I'm dead, so I can't have my feelings hurt. I'm dead, so I don't have any rights. I'm dead, so I don't need to be puffed up with pride. My life is dead. I've been executed. I'm dead with Christ. And I need no credit for anything. See, the life that wins is an executed life. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's an actual event. It took place. But then it is a daily appropriated experience. As I arise every day and say, Lord, today I want to die again to self. I want to die again to self. I heard the story of a drug addict that was asked by a man how he managed to withstand the temptation to go back into drugs. And he said, well, when I became a Christian, I came to the understanding that I died that I was a new creature in Christ and old things have passed away and all things have become new and that I've been crucified with Christ and I was a dead person. So he said, when temptation comes knocking at my door, I just say, Lord Jesus, I'm dead. Would you get up and answer the door for me? <laughs> I'm dead. Would you just get up and answer the door for me? You see, the life that wins and that overcomes is an executed life. And quite frankly, Many of us live in bondage to pride. We live in bondage to anger. We live in bondage to resentment and all of those things because those are things of the old life and daily we want to get up and resurrect the old life. And Paul says, you must die daily. And when you die daily, then none of those things become a problem because you see you're a dead person and you can't hurt a dead person. So the life that wins is an executed life, but not only is it an executed life, Paul says it is an exchanged life, an exchanged life. This is interesting. Read on with me in verse 20. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I that live, but Christ's life now is in me. It is Christ that lives in me. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, I'm dead. I no longer live, but now Christ is living in me. In other words, my life has been exchanged for his life. He has exchanged his life for my life, I've died, and now he lives in me, and in virtually what has happened is he has exchanged his life for my life. Now, Christ lives in all Christians, doesn't he? He dwells within all of us who are born again. But the power of the life of Jesus in your life is released only to the degree that you're willing to daily die to self. To the amount that you hold on to the old life on that day, that hamstrings the power of Jesus in your life in that day. Yes, Jesus lives in all Christians, but his exchange life is to be a total experience and his power is only released in your life on each day to the extent that you are willing to die to self on that day. His life exchanged for my life. What a deal. What a deal. Think about that. Jesus comes to you and, and you've got this broken down life. You've got this pride-filled life. You've got this selfish life. You've got this sinful life. You've got all of this stuff. Jesus comes to you and says, hey, I'll make you a deal. I'll give you my life, my perfect life, my fulfilled life for that old, dirty, broken down life that you've got. Would you take that kind of deal? 
I mean, if, if, if a used car salesman <laughs> or a car salesman came to you and, and you were driving an old beat-up 49 Chevrolet or something that had two flat tires and, and the seats all torn up and holes in the floorboard where the water came up when it was raining and, and holes in the roof and rusted out fenders and all that stuff, and he said, hey, I'll take that old piece of junk off your hands and I'll give you this brand-new 1986 Cadillac Seville. Would you take a deal like that? I guarantee you would. That's what Paul says Jesus has done for us. It is the exchange life. He says, you've got this old, broken down, sinful, uh, ridiculously dead life. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to make a trade. An even Stephen trade. I'm going to take that old, broken down life of yours, and I'm going to give you my life. It's no longer I that live, Paul says, but Christ that lives in me. Now, he has exchanged my life for his life. Now, Make the application of that. In light of what we said, that the demands of Christ are impossible and my resources are inadequate. Make the application. That means that when I live an executed life and I have the exchanged life of Christ living in me, then every demand that comes upon me in life is not a demand on me, it's a demand on Jesus. Every demand that is made upon my life is not a demand on me. I'm dead, and Jesus is the only one that lives. Therefore, that demand is upon him, and it is not upon me. He lives within me. And so the impossible demands that are made upon my life are not demands upon me. They are demands upon Jesus who lives within me. Now listen, that makes the Christian life possible. Because what I cannot do, he can do. That makes the Christian life practical because whom I cannot love, and there are folks that I can't love. Some of you I have a difficult time loving. There are people that I can't love in my flesh, but what I cannot do and who I cannot love, Jesus can love if I let him love through me. If I have allowed him to exchange his life, if I have died to self on that day, then Jesus will be able to love you through me, and it's not a demand upon me to love you. I don't have to love you. Jesus loves you through me when I've died to self, and I exchange his life for mine. Not only does it make Christian life possible and practical, it makes it personal because it says he lives within me, not it lives in, within me. He, a person, Jesus, not symbolical, but in reality, Christ who dwells within me richly, completely, totally. And so every demand that comes upon my life, the demand to love my enemies, the demand to not worry about what you'll eat, what you'll drink, where you'll sleep. All of the impossible demands that are made upon life, upon the Christian life, are no problem because they're not demands upon me. I'm dead. They're demands upon Jesus who lives within me. He is able. So the life that wins is the life that is an executed life. It is a past event when you trusted Christ, but it must be a daily appropriated experience every day to reckon yourself dead, to consider yourself dead, to open the books and say, I'm dead today. I'm not going to let the old self rise up. I am going to be dead all day long. And then it is an exchange life. At that point, Jesus says, then my life will be lived through you. It's no longer I that live, Paul says, but Christ who lives within me. And finally, the life that wins is an empowered life, an empowered life. Notice what he says Toward the end of the verse, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It is an empowered life. I live this life now on the basis of faith. And my faith, folks, is not in me. 
I'm a dead person and I don't put a whole lot of faith in a dead person. I wouldn't put a whole lot of faith in the ability of a dead person to do anything. And so my faith is not in me. Paul says my faith is directed toward Christ. I live by faith in Christ. It is to him and his faithfulness. Now, what does faith mean? And what does Paul even mean when he says, I live by faith in the Son of God? What is faith? Well, faith is not just believing something long enough till it comes true. Just convincing yourself and believing it long enough and then finally that it's going to come true. That's not faith. Faith is not convincing yourself that something is true even though you know it's not true. <laughs> you know, that's some people's definition of faith. I know that this is not true, but I'm just going to believe it until I make it true. That's not faith, and the Bible never gives that definition to faith. Faith simply is counting upon the faithfulness of God to do what he said he'll do. That's what faith is. It's not faith in self. It's not anything I do. It is simply me directing myself, my eyes, my life toward Jesus and saying, Lord, I just trust that you're faithful to do what you have said that you'll do. Faith is taking God at his word. That's it. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your abilities. It has everything to do with God, though. When I just turn to him and I say, Lord, I can't do it. I know that, but I'm just going to trust you. You said you'll do it, and so I just have faith. You're going to do it, and I just lay myself at your feet. I trust in your faithfulness. Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. My faith is directed toward him. What's God promised to do? Well, we could spend all day on that one, couldn't we? God has promised to guide us by his Holy Spirit. So what do I do when I get up in the morning and I die to self that morning? Then I just say, God, I just trust you. Your hand is on my life and you're going to guide me. And where I go today is because you've sent me there. And so I just praise him in the midst of every circumstance of that day. Because you see, I trust him that he's faithful to do what he said he'll do. And he's promised me and he'll guide me. He's promised me he'll give his Holy Spirit to be the leadership and the guidance in my life. And so if I die to self that day, then at the end of the day, I can say, Lord, thank you for guiding me today. And thank you for taking me in those places that you took me today. And just praise him for his faithfulness to do what he said he'd do. He's promised that he'll make me a new creature, hasn't he? So when I get up in the morning and I appropriate that death on the cross and I die to self on that morning, then I can go through the day realizing that every action, everything that happens in my life is a result of the new life that is in Christ Jesus. At the end of the day, I can say, God, thank you for doing what you said you'd do. You made me a new creature in Jesus today. He said that he'll cause me to overcome. He'll cause me to live a life of victory that's over circumstances and not beneath the circumstances of life. And so when I get up in the morning and I appropriate the death that is in Christ Jesus on that day and walk out as a dead person letting Christ live through me, at the end of the day I can come back and say, God, thank you for the victory for today because you promised you'd do it and I just trusted you and you've done it. Do you understand? It is an empowered life and it comes by faith in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. He's promised to give us victory over all of the things that beset us. Greed, pride, anger, resentment, all of the sins of the flesh that Paul lists in Galatians, all of the things that destroy us. He's just waiting for us to take him at his word. He's just waiting for you and I as his people to take him at his word. That's what faith is. When I just say, God, I just die to myself, and I'm just going to trust you to do what you said that you'll do. Christian life is an empowered life. His power being released in my life when I trust him, when I trust him to do what he said he'll do. You know, Paul didn't just preach this. Sometimes I'm guilty of preaching something and not doing it because I'm human. And Paul was too. Sometimes he did that. But most often the things that Paul preached, 
under the inspiration of the Spirit, he acted out in his life because he lived in that kind of daily communion with the Lord and that kind of power of the Spirit. So Paul didn't just preach this and go out and do something else, but he acted it out in his life. You remember that when Paul wrote the letter of Philippians, you know where Paul was? He was in a Roman prison when he wrote the letter of Philippians, and there were some people there that said, this is our chance to get Paul. There were some people that were jealous of him and the great following of people that had begun to follow the Apostle Paul as he preached the Lord Jesus. And so they said, I'll tell you what let's do. Let's go out and preach here and here and here. And this is our chance while Paul's in prison. We'll steal this great following of people that have begun to rally behind the Apostle Paul. And then we'll just make his imprisonment even that much worse for him. <laughs> some people came to Paul and they said, Paul, you got you to do something. I mean, while you're in prison here, these guys are out preaching Christ and they're trying to steal away this great following of people that have begun to follow. And you know what Paul's response was that was to that because he was a dead man. He said, if Christ is being preached, that's all I care about. He said, if Jesus is being preached, that's all I care about. I don't care about a following. If Jesus is being preached for whatever reason, that's all that counts to me. Church in Corinth, boy, I'd have hated to have been the pastor of that church. <laughs> I know I have some buddies that pastored churches worse than Corinth, man. But that was a bunch of snakes in that church in Corinth. They were a bunch of immature babies in Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul reminded them of their immaturity and the fact that they weren't ready for the meat of the word. They just sucked on the Bible. And they'd been baby Christians, 50-year-old Christians, still living in the crib spiritually. And, and they caused Paul all kinds of problems. That bunch in Corinth slandered, criticized one another, slandered, criticized Paul. What did Paul do? Did he get angry? Did Paul let the flesh take over? Did he get bitter? No. <laughs> just wrote him back another letter and said, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you. He said, there's one that judges me, Jesus himself. How was Paul able to do that? Because he was a dead man and the life of Christ was living in him. I'd say that Paul was a free man, wouldn't you? I'd say that Paul lived a life that could be characterized as a winning life. Nothing defeated him in what happened in his life. How does that take place? What is the life that wins? Well, first of all, it's an executed life. It means when I die to self by faith in Jesus, when I trust him and I'm saved, I'm born again. But then it means that on a day-by-day -day basis, I renew that execution. I renew that sentence. I die daily to myself. Every day I get up in the morning and I say, Lord, I'm dead today. I'm dead. I just count it. I've looked at the books. You've said it so, so I agree with it. I'm dead today. It's not going to be me that lives. It's an executed life, but it's also an exchanged life because, see, when you die, then Jesus says, now I want to live my life through you. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. It's an exchanged life, and then it's an empowered life. He gives you the power to go through and meet the impossible demands of the gospel. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, I live recognizing that he who lives in me is faithful to do what he said he'll do. And that's given me victory. That's given me a life that wins. That's to be an overcomer in life. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. A life that wins, an executed life, an exchanged life, an empowered life. Let's pray together.